0: Welcome to Technovation, I'm your host Peter High. My guest today is Mike Davies. Mike is the director of Intel's Neuromorphic Computing Lab, a position he's held since 2017. He's also a senior principal engineer at Intel Labs. We'll talk a bit about the relationship between those organizations. And I also look forward to understanding the basics of this topic uh, and its relevance both to Intel and to the world more generally in Mike's perspective. Mike joined Intel in 2011 as part of an acquisition of Fulcrum Microsystems, where he was the Director of Silicon Engineering. Mike, welcome to Technovation. Great to speak with you today. Hi, Peter. Great to be here. But first, a word from our partner, Transmit Security, and the company's co-founder and president, Rakesh Loonkar. Transmit Security is a cybersecurity organization that focuses on identity experience and is enabling a secure and passwordless future. They also recently received the highest Series A venture capital investment in history for a cybersecurity company at a valuation of $2.2 billion. Rakesh wanted to share a couple of recommendations for technology and digital executives on how to improve a company's cybersecurity infrastructure.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. First, I strongly recommend to take part of their budget and dedicate it to really innovative companies. It has to be built into the budget's. Up front, so that it serves as a forcing function to really look for new technologies. The, the second recommendation is outside of identity. There are two very interesting classes of security technologies that are emerging. The first one is improving the quality of code to make sure that your developers are not introducing software vulnerabilities. The second is cloud security. I think we're in the first inning of hundreds of companies that will be created offering really innovative ways of securing the multitude of problems in the cloud environments. I just want to leave your audience with this last thing. Every single time they have to enter their password, change their password, can't remember their password, or any other problems, please remember transmit security.
0: And now on to the interview. Wonderful. Well, let's, let's, for the uninitiated or less initiated, I would love to hear in your own words, um, sort of the definition of the topic. What is neuromorphic computing? Uh, Provide some of the basics if you would.
2: Sure. Yeah. So from my perspective, Neuromorphic computing is uh, an effort to go back to the first principles of of rethinking computer architecture from the perspective of what we understand today about the workings of the brain, uh, really at the very lowest level. So focusing on neurons and the connections between neurons and the the dynamics, the ways that neurons operate at at a biological level and understanding that and adapting that and applying it to the manufacturing you know chip design technology we have available today so as our engineering tool seeing what lessons what principles are applicable and try to rediscover uh, a, a different way of performing computation, hopefully one that is achieving the energy efficiency, the latency and the adaptability, the ability to learn you know, online deployed in the real world with real world data um, you know, much better than, than what we can do today with conventional uh, uh, computer architecture.
0: And there are obviously a lot of touch points, as you and I've talked about uh, in prior conversations, between the work you're doing and artificial intelligence and deep learning, more generally speaking. Talk a bit about that relationship, if you would. Uh, many people who are watching or listening to this would certainly be familiar with uh, AI and its advances, and perhaps with deep learning and it advances there. Talk a bit about the relationship with what you've described and those broader topics as well.
2: Sure, yeah. Well, uh, it, from some perspective, Uh, everything is brain-inspired in computing. If you go back decades, so seven decades or more to Alan Turing, von Neumann, Rosenblatt, some of the very original thinkers in computing and AI, uh, they had the brain in mind. Uh, And so they were uh, trying to emulate and capture the, the amazing intelligence uh, capabilities that in, in the one example we found in the natural world, which was the brain. So all of this has kind of a common family tree, so to speak, um, uh, you know, quickly back in those days, there was. Uh, a a divergence between what is now called the the von Neumann model, so our standard uh, computer architecture that has advanced by, you know, factors of a million over the decades, Um, and then then meanwhile, there's been another splinter, which is neural networks, Um, so so really taking this uh, bottom-up perspective of let's capture the more literal form that we find in the brain, so so back in the 1950s, there was the perceptron, uh, uh, the first kind of hardware network neural network. And that's the technology that over decades now has evolved into uh, what we call standard neural networks or deep neural networks, deep learning. And and just in the last decade is when we've had the computational horsepower and some of the data set availability to really make that particular approach, um, which has been decades in gestation, um, really successful and thriving and now changing the world, you know, just in the last 10 years. Um, But, but, that really traces its roots back to that, you know, 1950s, 1960s era modeling of neural networks, which is um, an extremely powerful model, but quite different from what you know we now understand as as uh, you know the way real neural networks, real brain brain networks operate. So, so what we're doing is we're taking a fresh look at uh it, really thinking about the the those primitive elements and, and seeing how they they provide capabilities which are very different from what traditional neural networks do in, in terms of being deployable, operating at very low power levels. Um as opposed to technology, which is much better suited for, say, data center oriented, you know, very big memory sets, pre-collected data that is, you know, kind of processed through it at, at once training all the parameters in the network as you do in the the sort of the deep learning paradigm, um, which is which is incredibly powerful when you have sufficient data and compute to to perform those kind of operations, but is very different from the kind of learning and adaptation that we find happening in in brains of real organisms.
0: Very interesting. I appreciate that that uh, that that broader background as well. And, and it strikes me from the way you describe this that, uh, some of what you were doing is really thinking long term, and and the, the the broader innovation that will happen across decades, versus the sorts of things that will de- Intel would be able to derive, and, and and customers and others would be able to derive value from in the near term. And I wonder, even just from a strategic planning perspective, how you think about that balance between the the, the gains that necessarily one thinks of, for example, eventually getting to artificial general intelligence, which most pontificators would suggest is decades in the future um, versus the kinds of advances that have been happening uh, across these various topics in recent years and will continue in in the years to come. How do you think about that balance between the near, medium, and long-term implications of what you're researching?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a great question. I mean, the you know why now? What even the field, this modern field of neuromorphic computing, where we're really studying modern neuroscience, has has been around for some time, even before Intel, uh, you know, invested and got in this area. So really, uh, and, and if you ask, you know, many in the field, they will answer, you know, neuromorphic computing, of course, is the future, and it always will be, right? So it, it, you know. it... Is the technology ready with the state of uh, semiconductor manufacturing technology that we have? You know, is it ready to deliver value? Do we understand enough about the way the brain works, um, and do we have sufficiently advanced manufacturing technology, transistor technology, and related memory technology to 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 really deliver value to the real world? And so that that was. The the top priority, the first question that we were looking at in this in this uh, uh, research field is to understand what is the state of the art, and you know given that, how does it compare to conventional techniques, uh, conventional state of the art solutions to the same problems. And and that's what the first three years of of the work with our our first neuromorphic chip Loihi was was all about was you know not necessarily trying to push this out into market immediately but really to just survey kind of a shotgun based approach of all the different possible applications where this might be deployed and where does it outperform conventional solutions you know where does it not where do we need you know ongoing innovation in uh transistor scaling new memory technologies you know uh w- where is the algorithmic understanding of how these brain systems work where is it just you know too too early to really uh do something useful and so so that's that's what we've been engaged in over the last 3 years and we have a pretty good understanding that the, it, there there's a range of of applications some which are quite viable in the near term. And, and there's a growing ecosystem of startups that are, that are really uh, tackling some of the that near term opportunity. Um, and then there's the longer term, you mentioned uh, artificial general intelligence, right? Th- these are not things that are happening overnight. I think myself and those in the field uh, feel very strongly that eventually, Neuromorphic architecture will be part of that answer, you know, an essential ingredient if we want to capture the kind of intelligence that we observe in, in, in humans um, and, and, and scale that up even even larger, potentially. Um, but, uh, but, but we don't have to wait to figure out and answer all those problems. You know, we are finding uh, applications and, and value in, in the near term at a variety of timescales.
0: Well, Mike, I appreciate you you walking through that that uh, the 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 interesting ways of thinking about both the near term opportunity and the long term opportunity associated with this topics. So I know from our past conversations, um, although there have been tremendous there has been tremendous progress made uh, in, in terms of computing power, in terms of data sets, in terms of a variety of things that are coming together that have allowed for further advances uh, in artificial intelligence, deep learning, and certainly, of course, neuro- neuromorphic computing. Uh, but that there are a lot of challenges that still remain that impede the progress um, and and are challenges to overcome. Uh, One thinks of the, again, further technology challenges in addition to cost challenges. I wonder how you think about those things and some of the approaches you've contemplated to overcoming them.
2: Yeah, sure. So I would say, you know, you can break the the, the research challenges down into maybe three general categories. You know, one is, can we build... The basic uh, hardware architecture that um, is is capturing what's known from an algorithmic perspective uh, in in an efficient, performant way, um, and 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 you know, kind of build something that's functional, basically from a hardware perspective. There's there's then the software challenge of uh, making that useful. Uh, So developing, kind of rethinking computation and algorithms and the entire software stack that has to sit on top of this very exotic new uh, computer architecture. Um, And then there's kind of some of the fundamental issues related to given our current transistor technology, our current semiconductor manufacturing technology, you know, what does that add up to as far as an overall, you know, total cost of ownership uh, you know trade-off for uh, for a customer for a particular application and i would say on the first uh uh challenge there w- things are looking pretty good so um although of course we don't understand everything about the way the brain works and algorithms that that uh can can provide value um, there's enough understood that we can certainly uh build some of these uh build accelerators build chips like we have with with uh lohi that uh that perform pretty well and uh, so, so that I would say, from a from a basic hardware design and architecture perspective, um, things are you know kind of almost green light. Um, now, on the software perspective, because it truly is a rethinking from the bottom up, we we're lacking an ecosystem of developers. You know, where even in the deep learning world, you have tens of thousands of. Of, of software developers, if not hundreds of thousands now that, that really understand all the nuances of the available computer architectures, the algorithms and, and can immediately deploy this into real world applications. But in, in the neuromorphic world, the uh, the the basic idea of computing is different and and the way you think about coding and constructing networks um, is is really has to be rethought and so so that that's that's a major challenge we're facing which is going to limit the commercial deployments to pretty niche uh opportunities it is these are not going to be general sdks that are put out that can uh you know allows applications to really unlock the 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 true value of the technology it's going to be more targeted 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 point solutions uh, in in this kind of foreseeable few year future from, from here. Um, and then the last one is is unfortunately pretty fundamental uh, based on where we're at today. One of the central defining properties of neuromorphic computing is the co-location, the very tight integration of computing or logic gates, kind of the arithmetic and multiplicative and all these kind of uh, logic operations that are associated with processing data with the storage of, of data itself. And, um, and, and that in the brain is happening at the level of an individual neuron, and there are 80 billion neurons in, in the human brain. So there isn't a separate, you know, to put it in concrete computing terms, there, there isn't a, a separate DRAM or a hard drive and, and the processor, CPU. These two concepts, these two architectural ingredients are completely smushed together and um, you know, weaved into a, uh, into a neural fabric. And our and our manufacturing technology just isn't set up for that. Um, the entire semiconductor industry is is uh, you know partitioned between memory manufacturing and logic you know compute manufacturing. So so that means what that translates to bottom line is is an increased cost uh, you know per function for neuromorphic chips. Because you, you, we have to use one of these processes or, or the other. and Due to the complexity of the computation, it has to be in the compute process. Um, and, and that means that the cost per storage unit, the per, per data unit of, of that's that stored inside this chip, um, is at the cost of, of, of SRAM or, or the embedded memory that's in these um, logic processes compared to the cost of DRAM. So, so that's a pretty fundamental uh a headwind i would say that the field faces um and uh, what that means is that neuromorphic applications tend to be quite small scale uh uh you know so they're they're intended for um deploying into edge devices maybe small accelerator functions in standard socs for you know audio processing low dimensional kind of problems where you don't need you know the resources of you know very large data sets you know very large uh, network processes like like vision you know complex scene understanding um and uh, you know database analytics and these kinds of things because because the the cost is 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 prohibitive
0: basically very interesting indeed Well, I I know that you, you joined Intel via Fulcrum Microsystems, a company that was acquired by Intel. Fulcrum Microsystems itself was born out of Caltech, where you have multiple degrees. And so the the sort of foot in the academic world and the importance indeed of the academic world and the research that comes from it, oftentimes that is many decades, uh, looking many decades into the future with less of a you know, profit motive associated with it necessarily. Um, this whole concept of the broader ecosystem and building one in order to deliver what you have described, Mike, um, is clearly an important aspect of, of what, what, what ties all this together. And in fact, the whole topic of neuromorphic computing, as, it, as you point out, as it replicates uh, the, the functioning of the brain, it really involves a lot of disciplines uh, uh, that need to also come together as an ecosystem in order to deliver this. Talk a bit about the way in which you've thought about curating that ecosystem to deliver what you've described.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, so uh, engaging with the academic community is an essential part of, of you know, the successful progress in this field, um, and that's not necessarily unusual for Intel Labs. I, I think many other groups within Intel Labs has uh, vibrant uh, engagements, collaborations, and and we fund a number of academic groups around the world uh, across all the areas of research that that uh, we pursue. But what is really unique about neuromorphic computing is is that multidisciplinary aspect. So we're literally working with neuroscientists. Uh, you know, like we don't go into labs and work with biological neurons, but we collaborate with uh, academics who who actually do that that work on that wet science side of things. And that's 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 pretty unusual for um, you know semiconductor company research groups, right? Um, and you know, at the same time. It, you know, we're not looking to simply copy what we see in the lab in biological organisms. Ultimately, we're trying to understand the principles. So reduce this down to understandable math, um, you know, models. And and so for that reason, we're quickly steering in the other direction, which is theoreticians working with mathematicians, physicists even, um, you know, and of course, computational neuroscientists, uh, that that can really, um, you know, take these observations that come from biological neurons and condense this down into um, simple theories. And, and then everything in the middle. You know, of course, we also have to work with the, the conventional computer uh, scientists, the computer engineers, um, even design methodology research. So although we at Intel, we're sticking to a a, a digital style of of neuromorphic chip design, which is using by and large standard industry tools, standard methodologies, there's still some very unique aspects of that. So asynchronous design, for example, which which is actually what we carried forward with us from those Fulcrum days, that was our technology there that that came out of Caltech. We still have collaboration and research into this different style of, of, of designing digital chips, which is Clockless. You know, this is uh, unlike what you know. All nearly all uh, uh, commercial chips today uh, are using. You know, synchronous design. We're using something different. We're taking that clock out, and that's much more the way the brain operates. Where um, information is signaled through events, so these spikes, action potentials, and and the timing of those um, spikes or these packets are are actually encoding information along with the data that it carries itself. So, so across all these ranges, there's a, a great deal of collaboration, and we have a, a community that we've been building over the last several years um, to, to sort of formalize and structure this collaboration and really provide a way to um, give people access to our neuromorphic chips, which are research chips. We're not selling these at all. We give you know, this access free to the community, and, um, and that's that's grown out to over 150 uh, groups around the world. Um Mostly academic, but but of course you know that that's not our end goal. We we love to work with the academics, but increasingly we're we're working with um, government labs. That's a very important ingredient there too, where they have the resources to make you know bigger investments in these uh, these projects that uh, you know with long time horizons. Um, And then also more and more corporate groups. So the customers of Intel that are coming with problems that are not well solved yet with standard methods, and and there's not necessarily a clear path to how you get to the types of solutions that they need, and neuromorphic technology might be offering the solution. And So these are some of the most fun engagements because we got to really think about how this technology can impact the world and solve problems that are just not possible to solve yet.
0: Interesting, Mike. Well, you've mentioned a couple of times Intel Labs. Uh, your neuromorphic computing lab is part of the broader Intel Labs, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with a number of people at Intel Labs, including Rich Ulig, the director of Intel Labs. Uh, talk a bit about the relationship between your lab and the different component parts of Intel Labs, and, and frankly, also the 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 way in which you all work together, I, I'm sure that the Venn diagram uh, that uh, you know that applied across the various parts of the lab has quite a bit of overlap, just as of course, there are some aspects that are unique uh, to one group versus the other. Talk a bit about the the ways in which uh, you and your peers across the lab work together, please.
2: Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, as you can imagine, that Venn diagram is very complicated. I mean, Intel's business it touches all aspects of the real world of all you know technology. So Intel Labs mirrors that. You know, we have research in all areas of computing, um, and and so it's a uh, it's a really uh, fun and dynamic environment because there is that that diversity across the entire uh, scope of computing. Now, neuromorphic computing, my lab, neuromorphic computing lab, is um, engaged in pretty much the most, you know, about as basic an area of research as as Intel labs engages in. So this kind of quite a long time horizon, thinking about, um, you know, really rethinking the basic principles of computing. Uh, you know that's not so common necessarily in Intel Labs. There's maybe quantum computing is the one other analogy uh, of where where that that kind of rethinking is happening and kind of fundamental approach. Um, now now we're compared to quantum, we we have a sort of enviable position where we have chips today. Um, you know we have a technology that's. From a hardware perspective, it could be commercialized. So that means we do have a lot of collaborations. You know, not just outside the company with academics and government groups, but but within Intel labs um, with with other people pursuing you know more conventional approaches to ai applying ai tools that are available today to problems you know both inside intel and outside you know our customer problems and so they provide a, a really you know close uh uh, uh it, it, you know insight into some of the the struggles that that we have with conventional uh, ai technology uh conventional architectures and and so we can you know collaborate very uh, deeply and think about you know fundamental competitive advantages that that we can offer, you know, for Intel, uh, you know, facing those kinds of uh, challenges.
0: Excellent. Well, Mike Davies, thank you so much for for taking time with me today to speak on Technovation about uh, the groundbreaking research you and your team are doing, giving us a bit more context to neuromorphic computing and what we might see in terms of progress in the near term versus the long term and just the more broad uh, view that you have in terms of how to bring all of this to life. It's been a really interesting conversation.
2: Sure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Peter.